1: This archival episode of Design Matters came out in pre-pandemic times in November of 2019.
2: Face-to-face encounters with strangers seem to yield far less value than we would imagine. In fact, they very often seem to yield negative value. That is to say, we appear to be worse off in our estimations, in the accuracy of our estimations of others after meeting them than if we never meet them at all.
1: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 15 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, a conversation with Malcolm Gladwell about why we are so easily fooled by dishonest people. The reason
2: sociopaths and liars get away with their lies it's not because they're geniuses it's because we're not built to spot them
0: some people will always think of malcolm gladwell as a writer for his new yorker articles and books like the tipping point blink and outliers other people know he's a writer but they might be more familiar with his podcasts Revisionist history goes deep on events, ideas, or people that have been overlooked or misunderstood, like the inventor of the birth control pill, who was also a committed Catholic. Broken Record, which he co-hosts with Rick Rubin and Bruce Headlam, is a conversation about or with musicians. Malcolm Gladwell is also something of a podcast mogul, having co-founded the podcast company Pushkin Industries with Jacob Weisberg. But fear not. He hasn't stopped writing. His latest book, which is also an innovative audio book, is titled Talking to Strangers, What We Should Know About the People We Don't Know. And we're going to talk about that and more in our conversation today. Malcolm Gladwell, welcome to Design Matters.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Malcolm, in 1975... The Toronto Star published a piece called Anger in the Land, a national compendium of beefs that collected feedback from readers about what makes them mad. Mm -hmm. A young man from Park Manor Senior Public School in Elmira, Ontario wrote in, What makes me mad is the lectures that are bestowed upon me by teachers and students alike. It's murder to hear some teachers go on and on. It's murder to hear my own schoolmates express their views in 200 words while nobody listens. My ears are forever closed to senseless lectures. I believe that was you. Are
2: you serious? I have no memory of that. What was I complaining about? And then I turned to someone who does nothing but lecture other people. This is like, it's, it's awfully rich, isn't it?
0: It's kind of ironic, yeah. It's wonderful.
2: I think I was just in love with the idea of getting a letter published or a, something published in the paper. I think that's what that's about.
0: As your mentor from those days, Jim Debach has said, Malcolm's writing at age 12 resembled a wonderfully designed garden minus the cumbersome weeds. Hmm. So you were a wunderkind.
2: Jim DeBock was someone who taught me a lot about writing. He was a he was a wonderful teacher of mine.
0: Malcolm, this is our fifth interview hmm. and your third appearance on Design Matters. You first joined me back in 2007 with your mother, Joyce Gladwell, to talk about the republishing of her book, Brown Face, Big Master. Your second appearance on the show was in 2012 when the late, great Hillman Curtis filmed a live episode of an interview with you, Brian Ray, Paul Sayre, Didi Dee Dee Gordon, and Josh Lieberson about the creation and publication of a box set of three of your most popular books, Tipping Point, Blink, and Outliers. Today, I primarily want to talk about your new book, Talking to Strangers, What We Should Know About the People We Don't Know. And maybe if you have some time, I'd also love to talk with you about your own podcast empire.
2: I love that you call it an empire.
0: Well, you've that got seems, a lot going on. Seems
2: to be jumping the gun.
0: Well, maybe burgeoning <laughs> it's, podcast empire.
2: Well, it's a, you know, it's a small principality. I wouldn't call it an empire.
0: Pushkin is was the name of your dog, right? Pushkin, Pushkin is,
2: first of all, of course, the famous Pushkin, Russian poet. Pushkin, of course. Who was biracial, which everyone has forgotten.
0: Huh, I did not know so that. I am a, a Russian literature minor, by the way, in college. You did not know that. I did so, not know he was biracial. So, first
2: of all, he's a patron saint of Malcolm Gladwell. Like, biracial writers everywhere love Pushkin. Then my dad named our first dog Pushkin. Um, and then I named my... You know, if you're a writer, you set up a little, for tax purposes, a little company. I called it Pushkin. Then I used to call my apartment Pushkin.
0: How come? I don't know why. Was it multicolored?
2: No, I just, I would say, instead of saying, come to my apartment, I thought it was better to say, come to Pushkin. And then I started this company with Jacob Weisberg, and I wanted to call it Gramsci. Why? Well, because uh, I liked the idea of picking a semi-obscure 19th century Marxist, and also my very dear friend, Lauren Redness, who is a brilliant designer and artist, she did a caricature of Gramsci, which was so hilarious that I thought, oh, this will be our logo.
0: Ah. But
2: then no one wanted to call it Gramsci. So then I went back to Lauren and said, Lauren, everyone wants to call it Pushkin, even though I have 17 Pushkins. Will you do a logo of Pushkin? And she did a logo of Pushkin, and that is our company signature is. It's a little Lauren Redness caricature of the great poet Pushkin.
0: Cool. Malcolm, you began talking to strangers by discussing the case of Sandra Bland, an African-American woman who was pulled out of her car by a police officer named Brian Encinia, following an argument after initially being stopped for failing to signal, which occurred while she was trying to get out of his way, thinking that he was trying to stop someone else. Yeah. Yeah. She was found hanged in her jail cell three days later. Why did you decide to start with Sandra Bland?
2: Well, you know, I was interested in writing a book about what's going wrong with our interactions with strangers. What is it about people we don't know that um, defeats us so frequently? And it struck me that so many of the kind of high-profile cases that we were consumed with as a society were versions of this problem. The Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme. People thought they knew Bernie. They didn't. They thought he was a sober-minded, savvy investor. He was just a sociopath. You know, the Larry Nassar case at Michigan State. People thought he was a dedicated doctor. He was a pedophile. The Amanda Knox case. You know, a young woman goes to Italy, and the Italian police become convinced she killed her roommate, even though there was never any evidence. I mean, even though it was, it's an absurd conclusion. They didn't understand her. They thought... She was just a little bit weird, and they thought she was a criminal. And then we have the Sandra Bland case, which is a case about fundamentally about a tragic misunderstanding. A policeman becomes convinced that a young woman is dangerous when she's the furthest thing from dangerous. And so that notion of that idea that in many different parts of our modern lives, we appear to be encountering strangers and making these catastrophic errors with them, struck me as a good reason for a book.
0: You describe the book as an attempt to understand what happened on the side of the road that day and state this in the beginning. I suspect you may have had to pause for a moment to remember who Sandra Bland was. We'll put aside these controversies after a decent interval and move on to other things. I don't want to move on to other things. Malcolm, what is it about our attention span these days that allows for a news cycle that is oftentimes less than twenty four hours now?
2: Yeah well,, uh, we've just devised enormously efficient ways of gathering and disseminating news, right? I mean, not many years ago, I would read the newspaper in the morning and then i wouldn't I wouldn't gather any other news until the next day. Now, you know, I just look at my phone and get moment-to-moment updates. So part of it is just kind of an understandable thing that we've just gotten good at collecting information and finding out about it. So in one sense, yes, we're bombarded with so much that we tend to linger only for a brief period of time on things. But weirdly, the flip side is also true. I am more and more impressed by our ability to focus and dedicate ourselves to things when those things are of High quality. Here's a random example. You know, the number of times you have a conversation with someone and they tell you that they're obsessed with X television show and either binge it or every Sunday night they're glued to their television. Or the same thing about the way kids responded to Harry Potter books or the way my book right now, I have, a, and I'm sure we'll talk about it, the audio book. The audio book is, is outselling the physical book two to one. Really? Oh, it's—what it's, it's what I produce is actually is an audiobook. But what, what's amazing is a physical book, my physical book, you could probably read in five hours, four hours. The audiobook is eight hours. Right. It's far more—takes it way more time and attention to consume an, an audiobook than to read a print book,
0: right? But it's also an extraordinary piece of art. I actually experience the book three ways. I have the physical book— I have the Kindle so that I can take notes and, and mm-hmm. be able to easily transcribe the quotes that I want to talk to you about, mm-hmm. and then the audiobook. The audiobook is an experience. I mean, there's nothing that I've ever experienced quite like it. To have the actual audio tape of Sandra Bland fighting mm-hmm. with Encinia, with the policeman and the investigators, and this is throughout the entire book, this is just one example, the music. It's, as you put it, I think a, a really polished podcast in a lot of ways, an eight-hour yeah. podcast. It reminded me a little bit of Rachel Maddow's Bagman, but that didn't have a book.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, but, but that is to my point. It's not that we have lost the capacity to pay attention to complicated things. It's that we're selective. We won't pay attention to just anything, but if you make something of quality— It is astounding how much people will drop everything else and throw themselves, immerse themselves in the experience. So that's why I always say the observation that we live in a short attention span world is half true. It is also the case that we live in the opposite of a short attention span world. It's weird. It's like like we're sort of in this bifurcated state. Yeah, polarized. Yeah.
0: You write something in the book that I was surprised by, and then when I listened to the audiobook, I was even more surprised by it. You write about the police officer in, in the situation, and you state, we were in danger of looking at police shooting cases and saying the officer in the Sandra Bland case is a racist. Mm-hmm. Shame on him. And that is a deeply, deeply unsatisfying conclusion. A lot of what I'm gonna say now plays right into your thesis about yeah. the way we listen and the way we experience mm-hmm. reality and language. I, I was biased as I was reading, thinking, of course he's a racist. When I listened to the audiobook, I was like, he's definitely a racist. Then mm-hmm. I went and looked him up online to see what he looked like because I wanted to see if he looked like a racist. Mm-hmm. And I thought he looked like a racist, too. Mm-hmm. So then, like, how do you feel about that?
2: Well, was race a component in the apprehension and death of Sandra Bland? Absolutely. Black woman is stopped by white cop in rural Texas. She's 28 years old. She's driving a Hyundai. If she is a white woman who's 60 years old and driving a Mercedes-Benz, she's not stopped. And if she is stopped, the encounter goes profoundly differently, right? So absolutely, race matters. My question is, is looking at this case through a racial frame a useful way to make sense of it? And I have become increasingly convinced that the racial perspective on these kinds of crimes is increasingly problematic. We use it as a way of shutting down discussion, and dismissing cases, and saying the guy, dude's a racist. And then you shrug and you say, "What are you going to do?" And then that's why. We, and I, you know, you quoted that thing about how my my worry with this case is that we had all moved on. I didn't want to move on. Why do we move on? We move on because the way we make sense of it. Oh, this is just a racist cop. Doesn't permit any further. Exploration, or it's a conversation stopper, and um, that idea that personalizing problematic encounters and making them all about what lies in the hearts of the participants is a way of avoiding bigger issues. And that idea has been a central part of a lot of of really profound arguments within the civil rights community. A lot of there's a brilliant essay by a black historian called uh, The Whole United States is Southern, which is one of the most profound things I've ever read about race in America. And he makes this argument that the Southern, the argument of the white Southern segregationists in the 60s was they wanted to turn every racial question into a matter of interpersonal relationships. They wanted to personalize everything. They wanted to say, the real problem is that we don't love each other. We don't look each other in the eye. We don't treat each other right. They wanted to make it about one-on-one. And if we can solve that one-on-one, then this whole racial thing in the South is going to go away. And his point was, that's an evasion. The issue in the South is not that black people and white people don't look each other in the eye and, you know, and shake hands and sit down and have coffee. The issue is there is a series of institutions and structures and laws and practices that fundamentally enshrine a principle of prejudice and inequality. And what's going on in the hearts is irrelevant. It's like what matters is what's going on in the laws. Right, what's the going infrastructure. On. <laughs> the infrastructure, the fact that black people are denied opportunity and can't vote and are in second-class schools and on and on and on. The whole point of the essay is the Southern segregationists tried to change the subject. They tried to turn the conversation from a discussion of institutions and structures into a discussion about hearts and minds. And he's like... And they won. Because mm-hmm. he's like, look around the world. How do we discuss this now? We discuss it in terms of hearts and minds. So when I read that essay, it was an incredibly radicalizing experience. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going to play that game. I'm going to discuss this case. And I don't want to bring up the what's going on in the heart of the officer. I don't want to talk about whether he's a racist or not. I want to talk about the structures and institutions and practices that made it legitimate for a police officer to pull over a perfectly innocent woman on a street in the middle of the day in rural Texas. That's what I was interested in.
0: I'm going to ask you to weigh in on something that's been very controversial. I ended up going into a rabbit hole of sorts, just investigating, watching the videotapes, Mm -hmm. really trying to understand this particular case. And from what I understand, there's quite a lot of controversy over whether or not Sandra Bland killed herself or whether she was murdered in jail. And I'm just wondering if you have a a point of view on that.
2: Well, you know, I don't talk about this at all in my book because I'm. my interest in the book is why did it even start? How did it come to pass that a police officer would pull over a woman for no reason in the middle of the day? So the, the denouement of the case, the tragic denouement, her death in the cell is something I don't even talk about. Now, Do I have an opinion on this? I do. I, you know, have looked into the evidence. Of course, in the course of doing the book, I looked into the, watched the documentary and looked into the, I just don't find the argument that she was murdered to be particularly convincing. And uh, and I have two other reactions to it. One is, you know, the notion that this middle-of-nowhere, small-town, country, police department would have had its act together sufficiently, that they would murder someone in their cell and leave no traces. It's sort of hard for me to imagine. They're just not that slick. And two, the allegation or the suspicion that there's some deep, dark conspiracy um, that led to her death is exactly what my book is arguing against because it's another attempt to say, oh, this is all about, there's a sinister group of people in this little Texas town who did something absolutely outrageous. And the whole point of my book is, no, no, no. it's not about a sinister group of people in a little town in Texas. It is about the way law enforcement is conducted across this country at the highest imaginable level. The police officer in this particular case, Brian Insinia, is remarkable, not because he's a racist bad apple who orchestrated the yes, death that's of That's how he was Glenn. trained. He's a, he actually was doing what he was trained to do. That's the scandal, right? right? And that is a way, way bigger scandal than saying, oh, there's a couple of murderous bad apples in small town Texas. So that whole narrative is, again, a way to change the subject. The problem here is the strategies of law enforcement that have been enshrined in law enforcement across this country. The problem is not two or three conspiracy-minded malefactors in small-town Texas.
0: I had an experience today that made me think that I'm turning into one of those paranoid people that you talk about in the book where, you know, the person locking themselves in their room with guns— because I've been so involved in the book for weeks now, I was walking to the school, and there were two young teenage black boys fighting, really screaming at each other on the street, Mm -hmm. right up in each other's faces, calling each each other names. They both had a group of boys behind them Mm -hmm. that were supporting either side, and it looked like it might get worse. Mm -hmm. And I'm walking across the street. It was 23rd Street and 8th Avenue. And something came over me, and I'm like, Guys, guys, you've got to stop. Cops are going to come and you're going to get shot. This is what they love. Mm. And they stopped. Like Mm. they were in each other's faces. Yeah. About to come to Fisticuffs. And I said, you guys could get shot. And they stopped.
2: So interesting. And
0: I was floored by Mm. the fear. And... I, for the last year, have been dating an African-American woman, mm. and I can't even begin to tell you the amount of racism I now witness on a day-to-day basis because I've been living in this sort of white-girl-privileged world for as long as I have. Yeah, and yeah. it's terrifying. It really yeah, is, Malcolm.
2: Yeah. That particular story, there's so many things going on. There is, a, there is the issue of race and the idea that every young uh, black person not just young, but every black person, but particularly young black men, boys, carry around that constant fear in, their, in the back of their head that they are targets, right? There's that element. The other element, equally important, though, is it's about teenage boys, which is that teenage boys are, of all kinds, are cra- a little bit crazy. And we've always known that. Teenage girls, too. Teenage girls, too, <laughs> but in a, in a different way. Yeah. But, and as a society, we have grown sort of intolerant of the excesses of teenage boys as opposed to simply doing what you did just say hey stop it like they were shocked yeah, <laughs> that's the right response the wrong response is for the you know the cops to come along and kind of arrest people and make too big of a fuss of it the fact is that teenage boys of all kinds since the beginning of time go crazy every now and again and the the right thing to do is s- step in the middle of them and just say Shut up. Stop it. Go back to your right. right. Like, you know, like we don't have to escalate every single hormone driven teenage encounter to the level of some major crime. You know, and that's what we you know, that is what we have done in this country is we have pretended that a 16 year old boy is an adult in the same sense as a 36 year old man is. It's not true. Right. You're crazy at 16. Presumably you're not crazy at thirty-six. I mean some of us are but one would hope. Yeah.
0: You delve into myriad historic situations and modern events and you state this in the book. In all of these cases, the parties involved relied on a set of strategies to translate one another's words and intentions. And in each case, something went very wrong. Malcolm, how did you settle on the cases that you present in the book? You have Jerry Sandusky and Penn State, Bernie Madoff, as you mentioned, Amanda Knox, the suicides of Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton. Was it hard to settle on specific cases? Were there others that you eliminated?
2: It's a very, very imperfect process. You have a story you would like to tell. And in my case, I wanted to give an alternate explanation for what happened to Sandra Bland. And in the kinds of stories I like to tell are the stories that are digressive. And so the middle part of the book is a, dig- is a one digression after another on various themes of that encounter. And so I chose all of those cases that you mentioned because they illustrated various parts, I thought, various parts of the story I was telling. And I'm still not sure they're the right... You never know whether you've chosen the right ones. This book is very emotionally intense. There are a few moments of comic relief in this book. Yeah,
0: there's not a lot of happy endings. No, no, actually, happy. I don't know that there's any.
2: There may not be any. It's super dark, and I worried it was too dark. You know, I was always thinking of this as an audiobook from the beginning. And when you understand that, and you understand how powerful audio is, um, and how emotional, and how moving, and how... I really did begin to worry that what the experience of eight hours of delving into, I mean, there's a chapter on torture. There's
0: Yes, there is. I have
2: two pedophiles represented. I have sociopaths galore. I have...
0: Yeah, there's uh, a lot of sexual assault in this book.
2: A lot of, yeah, that Brock Turner case. And I, I did wonder what would happen if you sat down and devoured this in a single setting. And, I've you know, I've talked to people about that, and they they tell me they, they have to stop. You know, it's a lot to do
0: in... Especially when there's the real voices in the Brock Turner chapter... Both voices of Emily Doe and Brock Turner are actors. Yeah. Um, although it's, it would have been interesting to to find out if now that Chanel Miller has come forth and and introduced herself to the world, if, if yeah. her voice would. Have been, yeah, I didn't
2: realize until my book was done that she, that this is the the victim in the in the Brock Turner case was she was anonymous until. Uh, then all of a sudden in late summer right. it was learned that she was and she published a book that did has has done very well. Yeah, it's
0: a very good book. I'm going to be talking to her on the show as well. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. That's
1: interesting.
0: Um you've said that you believe that the surge of interest in podcasting and audio in general is foretelling of the death of social media.
2: Yeah, you know, that goes to what I was saying before about this sort of bifurcated. You know, I was I'm going to go on Joe Rogan's podcast in
1: That's going to the be public. fun. <laughs> <laughs> and so I wasn't
2: normally a Joe Rogan listener. So now I've been listening to Joe Rogan. And, you know, he's enormously good at what he does. But those are two and a half hours sometimes.
0: Tim Ferriss also. Tim Ferriss incredible. also.
2: Like, so, like, this whole, like, it's to my point, like, where did we get this idea that we have a short attention span? To the contrary, people are, they're willing to go deep. It just has to be quality deep. It's got to be an interesting subject and an interesting host, and, you know, it's got to be done well. But if you do it well, people are more, seem more prepared as ever to... To commit. To commit. I mean, that's what's interesting. So, like, that's why Twitter's weird, because how does Twitter persist in a world that's marked by this kind of wave of commitment and engagement? Right? There's no commitment or engagement in Twitter. Really, when I look at my own media habits... Uh, they are highly selective, and they are all deep. There's very little skimming around. It's like I'm reading long books, I'm listening to Bill Simmons talk about basketball for like two hours, and I'm not alone. That's, that's the pattern. So I don't know. I think Twitter becomes something maybe and, and even the way I use, no, I use Twitter, but the way I use Twitter is really as an invitation to engagement. So I skim it in the way I skim the table of contents in the old days. Of the magazine, you would pick up, right? You skim and you figure out what you want to read. That's just all I'm using Twitter for.
0: Well, I guess Twitter is a TLDR kind of thing because I think that's the way the country's being run now.
2: Yeah, no, wait, wait. What's TLDR again? Too long,
0: don't read. Oh.
2: <laughs> <laughs> There's so many. I have so given up on knowing what all these various acronyms mean. Well, that's
0: why I teach undergraduate kids no, it's because that's is. how that's the only way I learn no, it's only fine. way
2: you have a big leg up on me <laughs>
0: Hardly. <laughs> hi I'm Debbie Millman Canva is great for designing visual content for work no matter what industry or department you work in now your next presentation with Canva presentations start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design it's a serious time saver Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. You give us this insight early on in the book. We think we can easily see into the hearts of others based on the flimsiest of clues. We jump at the chance to judge strangers. We would never do that to ourselves, of course. We are nuanced and complex and enigmatic. But the stranger is easy. And you go on to state that if you can convince the reader of one thing in the book, let it be this. Strangers are not easy. Yeah. Did you go into the research of this book with this suspicion that you wanted to prove or did it manifest as you were investigating and writing?
2: Well, I've always, as a journalist, one of the things that happens as a journalist is you have a, there's a kind of life cycle to your confidence. When you start out in journalism and you do your first couple of profiles, you're filled with an enormous sense of your own prescience and insight and savvy you meet the person and you interview them for two hours and you go home when you write it up and you you think oh i you know i saw through that person's you know um, masks i can get to the essence of them and then time passes and you learn a little bit more about that person or about and you realize oh actually i was kind of you know full of shit <laughs> and then and then if you write a book yourself and then people sometimes profile you and you read those profiles and then you begin to realize, oh, if your first thought is, oh, my God, that profile was so insanely inaccurate. I can't even believe anyone thought. And then you th- immediately think about your own profiles and you think, oh, I must have done the same thing, right? So I have gone through, I'm at the end of that life cycle. I have now done many, many profiles and subsequently learned how wrong I was and been profiled and subsequently learned how wrong we all are in our, you know, the classic one. Some guy meets me in the Austin airport. He wants to chat and talk about my book and take a picture. So I do. And then he emails me. I don't know how he got my email address, but he emails me yesterday and with this long email, totally inappropriate, about how He was concerned because I wasn't the kind of goofy, friendly, curious Malcolm he had expected. I seemed sort of unfriendly and, you know, that kind of weirded him out and blah, blah, blah. Now, of course, what's the explanation? Well, for long, complicated reasons, I was operating on like four hours' sleep. I was in week seven of my book tour. My flight had been delayed like three times, you know. You know the answer. It, it had nothing to do with him. I was just exhausted. <laughs> if my mom had showed up, I wouldn't have been happy and curious. And I was just like, just wanted to like get on the plane and sleep. Um, so that's a classic case where he thinks he under, he sees the way I relate, thinks I'm, it's about him and my particular attitude towards him and knows none of the context right. that explains my behavior. We do that a million times a day. And I can say that to you and everyone will nod and say, yes, yes, I can see that. And yet, guaranteed you will go home tonight and somebody, you'll have some interaction with somebody and you'll think, oh my God. That oh,
0: it happens all the time. Yeah. Ambiguity yeah. always is perceived negatively. Yeah. I mean, I talked to Roxanne. I said, you know, when you text and you just write back, okay, can you put an exclamation point after that? Because otherwise, I think you might be upset about something. <laughs>
2: exactly. Yeah, yeah. I was, for the longest time, my best friend, Charles, when I would make plans with him, he would always say, sure. And I was like, it would piss me off. And then recently, I discovered myself saying sure in text. <laughs> and I was like totally enthusiastic. I was like, you know, do you wanna get a drink? She's like sure. Right. Meaning yes. Right. I mean yeah. texting is its own Yeah. The, the the necessity of the exclamation point. If they if they remove the exclamation point from the keyboard on phones, I would stop texting.
0: Absolutely. I
2: don't think it works without it. You gotta have it. It's like otherwise it's just gonna be one long endless miscommunication.
0: Absolutely. I want to talk to you about some of the case studies in your book. You talk about how in pre-World War II Germany, British leaders met with Hitler, and they believed him when he stated that he had no desire for war. And you detail how some people were deceived by Hitler and some were not. And the puzzle you outline is that the group who were deceived are the ones you'd expect not to be, Mm. while those who saw the truth are the very people you think would be deceived. And you go on to declare the following. This could all be a coincidence, of course. They were determined to see Hitler the way they wanted to see him, regardless of the evidence of their eyes and ears, except that the same puzzling pattern crops up everywhere. Can you elaborate on what that puzzling pattern is? Yeah, so there,
2: in that point of the book, I'm trying to account for the fact that face-to-face encounters with strangers seem to yield far less value than we would imagine. In fact, they very often seem to yield negative value. That is to say, we appear to be worse off in our estimations, in the accuracy of our estimations of others after meeting them than if we never meet them at all. So in the case of Hitler the people who completely misunderstood Hitler were the ones who met him. And virtually everyone who saw Hitler for really who he was in the years before World War II were people who never met Hitler. So that's a little bit of a puzzle, right? Because we we structure our society on the assumption that it's crucial to meet someone, a stranger face-to-face, if we are to make sense of the stranger. Every single company that makes a hire of consequence does so after a face-to-face job interview, right? But the evidence, I then go into the evidence using um, judges making bail decisions of defendants, pointing out that all of the evidence would suggest that when judges meet defendants face-to-face, they actually do a worse job of understanding whether they should be given bail or not than if they had never met them face-to-face and only looked at their criminal record. That's pretty sobering. And it's a kind of radical thought to think that you know what, when we're making high-stakes decisions about strangers, we might be better off not meeting them.
0: I mean, that's, I think, also why Freud wanted his patients to sit on a sofa facing away from him so there wouldn't be that constant assessment, analysis of how you're reacting to what I'm saying and what you think about what I'm saying, which we obviously always get wrong anyway. And just the notion of being able to tap into the unconscious was easier if you weren't constantly reflecting on the Mm -hmm. machinations of the physical interaction.
2: Yeah.
0: What can the television show Friends teach us about strangers and communication?
2: Oh, that was... The Friends chapter of my book is the only light chapter in the book, although it quickly gets into a murder. I was
1: going to say it's kind of terrible.
2: <laughs> but um, but uh, I was, so I was, that chapter was an attempt to explain a paradox, which is Friends, if you ever ask someone to explain the plot of an episode of Friends, it is insanely difficult. It takes like forever. They need a flow chart. It's like so much happens, right? And yet at the same time, no one, no one has ever said at the end of an episode of Friends, oh, my God, I, so much of that went over my head. I got to watch it again. It's,
0: right. not like no. No, it's not like Game of Thrones. No, it's not Game of Thrones.
2: You always get it, even though it's complicated. Why? So what I did is I took an episode and I gave it to a psychologist who studies facial expressions and had her go through and code the facial expressions. There's a whole language for describing people's facial
0: expressions. That was a very complicated part yeah. of the book. yeah. Well, the um, A3U. Yeah, yes. it was every, really scary. Every
2: muscle of your <laughs> face has a number. And so you can, I can look at your face and I can score it, do a notation of all the muscles you're using right now. And what I was interested in figuring out is when someone experiences an emotion on friends, is it expressed reliably and accurately on their face? And the answer is absolutely every time. When Joey is perplexed, Joey's face looks perplexed. When Ross is angry, his brow furrows, his eyes narrow, and his lips are stretched, and his mouth grows hard, you know? Or when uh, Phoebe is surprised, her jaw drops, her eyes go wide, and her eyebrows go up, right? They do this perfectly. So that's why you can follow along, even though it's complicated, because they are giving you this real-time emotional guide to the plot. In fact, you can turn the sound off on friends and still follow it because everything is done so insanely transparent that they'll give you two cracks at every emotional state, right? The way it's acted out and the way it's expressed on their uh, face. That is not the way things are in real life. I may be experiencing a very complicated emotion right now, but there is no reason to believe it's expressed on my face.
0: Do you think that the success of Jennifer Aniston and all of the rest of the stars had something to do with their talent? Or do you think it was the direction?
2: Well, I think that in a sitcom, in a primetime sitcom like Friends, you are required to act in a transparent way. In other words, the form asks for a kind of literalness in um, the way actors act present themselves. If you're doing a, a weird German indie film, the same rules do not apply. You know, there's a great deal of ambiguity there in the way people express themselves. But there is a, you know, the rules of engagement for Ross and Phoebe and Monica and whatever in Friends are that if the scene calls for you to be happy, you have got a smile and your face has got to light up. You can't, you can't do some ambiguous thing.
0: Do you think that that could work, this kind of test could work with Grey's Anatomy or with Seinfeld or, yeah? yeah?
2: Mainstream television is is a, an art form that calls for this kind of transparency. Because we watch, have watched so much of that, we have come to the false belief that we can read people by looking at their faces. And that causes a huge amount of problem when we're dealing with strangers, because We think that we can look into their hearts by reading their faces. And we can't because they're not Joey, right?
0: (laughs) It's not that way. You write about how the number of scholars around the world who study human deception is vast Mm. and that there are more theories about why we lie and how to detect those lies than there are about the Kennedy assassination, there's a person that you write about in the book who stands out from this group, mm. Tim Levine. Mm. He developed a unified theory of deception. Mm. I loved. I just love th- that whole name, the unified That's theory of deception. Yeah. And to try to answer one of the biggest puzzles in human psychology, why are we so bad at detecting lies? Yeah. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about Tim and the unified theory of deception.
2: Yeah. So Tim, Tim is a, professor at uh, University of Alabama in Birmingham. I actually just saw him a couple weeks ago. And he was one of the very first people I visited when I was thinking of writing this book. I spent a day with him in, a, in uh, Birmingham. So psychologists as a group have been fascinated for years, puzzled for years, with this question of why are we so bad at spotting liars? We're really bad at it. And you would think from an evolutionary standpoint that we'd be good at it you'd think that evolution would have rewarded those who could spot deception because that's obviously a very valuable thing to have in your back pocket, right? The ability to tell who's lying. Levine's argument is no, that's actually backwards. Evolution has, in fact, favored those who trust everyone because being someone who implicitly trusts others is enormously rewarding. Because the number of liars, sociopaths in the world is quite small, statistically, it's the right strategy. And being someone who is trusting allows you to be a good person. It allows you to enter into productive relationships. It makes you pleasant to be around. It allows you to start companies. I mean, you can't create any kind of organization unless you trust people, right? People who are paranoid and suspicious cannot start companies. They cannot belong to churches, or they cannot have a large, warm circle of friends. They cannot, I mean, there's all these things. So Levine's point is like, Sure, it'd be nice to be able to detect a liar, but the kind of paranoia and suspicion that that would require would make you so unpleasant in so many different ways that your genes are not going to get passed on. <laughs> no, if you have a choice between the trusting person and the paranoid person to choice of potential mate, you go with the trusting person every time. So what that means is, so he calls us default to truth. He yes. says we have evolved to default to truth, and we will only come to believe that someone is lying if the evidence gets overwhelming. But otherwise, we're just going to assume, no, it's the truth, 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 truth. That is why everything, we're able to do so many good things in society, but it also means that we will occasionally be the victim of Bernie Madoff's or Jerry Sandusky's, those kind of people who deceive us.
0: You write about how one of the best cases of what you call mismatching is Mm -hmm. with Bernie Madoff. So I want to talk to you about Bernie Madoff. I have been fascinated with Bernie Madoff since the story originally broke 10 years ago. You explore this notion of what you call matched versus mismatched people. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what that means?
2: Yeah, so this is Levine's idea. He digs in further and he says, okay, so what this defaulted truth means is we're going to have a lot of trouble spotting liars. And sure enough, we do, right? But then he goes even further. He says, in fact, it's more interesting than that. He says, there are some people we get right. And he calls those people matched people. And matched people are people who are like the characters in Friends, who when they're happy, their face lights up. And when they're sad, they have perfect frown. And when they're lying, they get red in the face and stammer and look away and get all nervous and jiggle their feet. And they're like, it's just obvious, right? But he said, there's another category of people he calls mismatched. And these are people who do not have a reliable correspondence between their body language and their internal emotional states. And those people we always get wrong.
0: Now, do you think that those people are acting or are they just operating with different motivations in, or unconscious uh, motivations Maybe in terms any. of how, they, how they're perceived?
2: In some cases, it may be people acting. I think in most cases, it's just the way they're built. You know I think many of us are mismatched in certain circumstances. You know, we all have different ways of expressing emotion, and one of the things that happens in a friendship is that you come to understand all the ways in which your friend is idiosyncratic, right? Friendship is the is the never-ending process of revising our understanding of someone we are close to, right? You're constantly updating your Database on this person who you're friends with, right? Each time you notice some anomalous event, you're like, oh, when my friend Stephen is unhappy, he doesn't show it in the same way I'm used to right. it. Maybe he stammers, or maybe he, you know, I, there's all kinds of that's what friendship is.
0: That's what love is, too. When Roxanne doesn't include an exclamation point and, OK, I don't assume she's mad at me anymore.
2: Anymore. Yes. You updated (laughs) your
1: your Roxanne database.
2: (laughs) Yes. Um, But we don't have a database on strangers. Right. And so we're left with this extraordinarily complex and noisy source of information on them. And so that's why it's so incredibly problematic to draw high stakes conclusions from strangers because we just don't know enough about their idiosyncrasies.
0: There was mountains and mountains of evidence about Bernie Madoff from Mm. so many different people, different um, organizations. Why was he able to dupe so many people?
2: Well, I think one of the key observations about default to truth theory is it's not them, it's us. So the reason sociopaths and liars get away with their lies for as long as they do, is not because they're geniuses. It's because we're not built to spot them. So, right away, the conversation about Madoff has to move away from this... There's a whole mythology about his twisted, dark, satanic genius, right? It's, no. He's actually... I don't even think he's a particularly good liar. There's nothing remarkable about him. He's actually really bad at it in certain ways. His operation was like, in retrospect, was like the most kind of flim-flammy...
0: Tin pot kind of yeah, yeah, just
2: like kind of like
0: typewritten invoices just, and yeah, statements. Some
2: accountant who's in a strip mall in, you know, Rockland County. Like nothing about it was particularly slick.
0: So do we default to truth, or do we default to greed?
2: Well, the greed of those who invested with Madoff had an awful lot to do with their defaulting to truth. We are not built to suspect people who, unless they massively violate our expectations, he didn't massively violate our expectations. By the way, he didn't claim to have 30% annual returns, which would have raised, legitimately raised eyebrows. Nobody would have believed that for long. He had 12% returns year in, year out, which is plausible. There are 100% legit hedge funds that have better returns than that, right? So he didn't strain credulity in lots of ways. He just seemed to be like, a kind of steady, gifted, boring investor. So people were like, oh, okay. I mean, the suspicions such as they were, you know, accumulated very, very slowly and were never sufficient to topple people's default to truth.
0: You also investigate a number of sexual assault cases in Talking to Strangers. The Brock Turner case wherein the Stanford student raped Chanel Miller while she was passed out behind a dumpster. The Jerry Sandusky case at Penn State, where he sexually abused many, many boys he was coaching. And the Larry Nassar case, where he was sexually assaulting hundreds mm-hmm. of young female gymnasts. Is there a common denominator that you found in the investigation of these types of stories?
2: In some sense, yes. In the case of Sandusky, there was a lot of blaming the victim, uh, that people who were deceived by... Sandusky, were prosecuted when they went to jail, Um, which seemed to me crazy. Like, you can't criminalize the human impulse to believe others. He was a pretty slick sociopath. Like, you know, lots and lots and lots and lots of people were fooled by him. There wasn't a lot of evidence lying around Penn State about his— took them years to make even the beginnings of a case against him— That was a weird, hard one. And I really profoundly am, and to this day, angry about uh, the way the prosecutors in that case, having found Sandusky and put him in jail, then decided that they would also put in jail, the leadership of Penn State, who did nothing wrong. And I I firmly believe that if any of us had been in the same position as the leaders of Penn State, we would have done exactly as they did. What
0: about Joe Paterno?
2: That's the most baffling of all. An assistant coach on his staff came to Joe Paterno with an allegation, ambiguous allegation, but nonetheless an allegation against Jerry Sandusky. And Joe Paterno, the next day, notified the appropriate his superiors. That's what the university guidelines, there's a whole set of guidelines about what someone in the university is supposed to do with an allegation of that sort. He did exactly as he was supposed to do. I have no idea why people thought that somehow he was complicit. What else is he supposed to do? You're supposed to alert your superiors when an allegation comes to you about a member of that nature of a member of your staff. To this day, I have no clue why people were jumping up and down about him. Do you
0: think that the anger, it's sort of proxy anger with the whole taking down of his statue and...
2: Yeah, that to me looked a lot like a kind of moral panic. Now, the Michigan State case is very, very different. So in Michigan State, unlike Penn State, in the case of Larry Nassar the allegations were not sporadic they were there was a flood of them that were going on for years they were not ambiguous they were explicit the people in positions of leadership were repeatedly told in no uncertain terms that something was profoundly wrong with the behavior of this man larry nasser so there i am more than willing to hold leadership accountable that you know so it's really i bring up those two cases in the book to contrast them, not compare them. Because I feel like, and I think that goes to another point here, which is that when I was doing one of my podcasts about, um, in last season, about a police shooting, and it was all about this one forensic investigator of police shootings, he said something that is so sort of simple, but I have never forgotten. He sat me down, and the first thing he said is, Malcolm, the one thing you need to remember when you're in this business is every case is different. And I've never forgotten that. And I feel like when these cases come up, we need to keep that in mind. Every single one of them is different. They have different dynamics. They have different sets of responsibilities. They have different causes. And we need to respect that difference when we look into them. So that was powerfully in my mind when I wrote those chapters. The Penn State case and the Michigan State case are worlds apart.
0: Do you think that we default to truth in some ways or try to find common denominators and things in an effort to better understand them because of our sort of need to find and recognize patterns?
2: Yeah, I think so, maybe. I think we are, as human beings, pattern engines, which helps us in a lot of situations, but also, let's not forget, our insistence on seeing patterns is also the source of a significant amount of discrimination and prejudice in the world, right? Prejudice, at its base, is the application of an inappropriate pattern, right? I think I, I see you with your blonde hair, and I think that blondes are dangerous and nefarious and.
0: Why? Thank you.
2: <laughs> you know that is inappropriate. In fact, your your blonde hair says nothing about your character. Well,
0: it maybe would help if it were natural. <laughs> <laughs> um, what do you think now about this notion of fake news and our default to truth? Is there yeah. is there some sort of tension in that?
2: Here's the thing. I don't really understand what fake news means. It's an instruction by the president not to believe things that are typically uh, not, fla- not, <laughs> not flattering to him. Yeah. So, you know, it's a kind of political strategy of his. Not sure how effective it is. It may be momentarily effective. But remember, default to truth is a fundamental, evolutionarily backed human predisposition. Fake news is a momentary political meme in 2018 and 2019 in the United States, in Washington, really. So it's like we're talking about two, we're talking about things moving on fundamentally two different tracks. I will say this about our contemporary period. People always talk about what a polarized, divided time we're in. I don't really believe that. I think Washington is polarized. I don't think people are polarized. And also, most of what we think of as disagreement is actually misunderstanding. And when you realize that, then you realize, oh, it's not genuine. We're not genuinely divided. We just haven't taken the time to understand that we're not divided. (laughs) Do you know what I'm saying? We misunderstand. We don't disagree.
0: You conclude talking to strangers by stating that the right way to talk to strangers is with caution and humility. And I'm wondering if you can elaborate a little bit on what that means.
2: What it means is you may think as a human being that you're, you have the tools to make sense of a stranger after a brief encounter. You don't. And the first step to kind of avoiding the sorts of tragedies that I detail in the book is dismantling that kind of overconfident expectation. You have to go in to an encounter with a stranger with deep humility. You cannot know what you need to know in a simple encounter. You have to be satisfied with less, and you have to hedge everything that you think you've learned. You know, everything should begin with, based on my limited observation, I think maybe X, that's as far as I would go, when has someone ever emerged from a job interview, or a police emerged from an interrogation and said, "Based on my limited interaction with individual this individual, I think maybe X"? No one ever says that. We should say that.
0: Has the way you interact with strangers changed since you started working on this book?
2: Oh yeah, I'm. I, I, mean, I was already backing off my certainty. Now I've abandoned all certainty, and I'm. I'm kind of trying to train myself to be, to be kind of agnostic about people I meet, in the best sense of that word, not to draw conclusions. Like, I'm seeing such a tiny little piece of someone, um, the worst thing I can
0: do is to draw a conclusion.
2: And if I do draw a conclusion, the best thing I can do is to be ready to throw that conclusion out in light of a slightest bit of contrasting evidence.
0: Or at least look inward and see what you might be contributing to something. I think that one of the most powerful lines in the book is, because we do not know how to talk to strangers, when things go awry with strangers, we blame the stranger.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And
0: that is sort of the most ominous warning for how, how we got here. Yeah. I'm curious about your perspectives on the Internet as it pertains to a massive interconnected web of strangers.
2: Well, you know, in one sense, the um, Internet is this is a good thing in a sense that it's a safe place to meet people from very, very different backgrounds. And to kind of, um, you know, the, if one of the solutions to this problem is for us to kind of narrow our expectations about what we can get from a stranger, the Internet does that beautifully. It's a great way to narrow expectations. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I can talk to sports fans just about sports. You know, like I, there's a running website that I spend a lot of time on. You know, it's a conversation there's about running. We're only concerned about people's – people, other people in as much as they are runners or care about running. That's actually correct, right? That allows us to um, escape all kinds of pitfalls. I'm not drawing any larger conclusions about you based on your feelings about, you know, this kind of running shoe or – this kind of training regimen. So, that, you know, that's a, the, it's a one, there's a lovely way in which the internet filters and kind of purifies these interactions. But there's also, I mean, I don't need to talk about the way in which the internet can also fan the flames of misunderstanding.
0: The last thing I want to talk to you about is your burgeoning podcast, Empire. Uh, You launched your podcast, Revisionist History, in 2016, and it now reaches roughly 3 million listeners per episode. That is amazing. Um, the New York Times pointed out that this is many more consumers than a best-selling nonfiction book garners. How do you regard the formats now in which you're producing your work? You also co-founded Broken Record and and Pushkin Industries. Mm-hmm. Um, talk, if you can, a little bit about what you're planning.
2: Well, I don't really plan things. I stumble into things. I stumbled into the original history because my friend Jacob asked me to do a podcast. So I was like, all right. And then... I realized I thought it would be kind of a one-off, and then I realized it was super fun. And then Jacob said, "Let's start a podcast company," and I said, "All right." So then we started a podcast company, and now we've got seventeen employees. Seventeen? Yeah, we're pro- wow, we're profitable. I mean, it's like crazy. I don't even know how it happened.
0: This is an empire. It is a little.
2: I mean, it's not an empire, but you know, it's super fun right now. And the world is, you know, the world is in love with audio at the moment. And then I did my book and did the sort of enhanced audio version of my book where we, instead of doing the audiobook in three days for $10,000, we did it in four months for with a budget of $200,000. And the result is, you know, now it's outselling the physical book. And that sort of opened my eyes as well. Like, oh, and I think it's largely a lot of young people who, that's just their preferred mode. They want to put things in their ears and, you know, and... That's how they want to kind of engage with a lot of stuff, and that's that's huge. I think I actually think that we're on the there's a real profound shift in consumption habits happening right now, and that you know we're returning to ears. Ears are the original, right? That's we sat around and told stories back in the day, and I think we're going back to that. Where images are going to occupy a very specific niche, not going to go away, but they're going to occupy very specific niche. And writing will continue to be important for print, for certain kinds of complex subjects. But what's happening now is a massive expansion and upgrading of the audio experience. One thing we've forgotten is that radio has been really bad for a really long time. Like, aggressively, overwhelmingly, unbelievably bad. If you try to listen to talk radio, it is 50% advertising. It is mindless chatter. And it's not thoughtful in any kind of meaningful way. It's just like yapping, time-filling crap. What's happening with podcasts is like people are like, oh, let's upgrade it. Let's make it as good as television is. Because television upgraded in the last generation. We went from the schlock of Kojak to insanely complicated, beautiful, powerful, tons of choice. So the same upgrade's now coming to audio. And I think, you know, we're going to kill commercial radio and we're gonna replace it with and we are it's already happening. we're replacing it with stuff that is just better and that's a huge revolution. so that that transition is what we're a part of of um, and we have all kinds of grand schemes about how to make it happen.
0: I can't wait to hear them. I have one last question for you. Is it true that you only drink five liquids water, tea, red wine, espresso and milk?
2: Uh, yes. Um, I said, I had a whole podcast episode on this once, but people always say that like, I'm some kind of monk. in (laughs) What about kombucha? In the hills of like, (laughs) you know, Tibet, living on, you know, on a tatami mat and living on rice and no, it's actually, I, with those five liquids, I have described 75% of what is fantastic about the world of liquids. (laughs) Right? Yeah. What am I leaving out? Kombucha. Kombucha. Uh,
0: champagne. I hate champagne. <laughs> well, there you have awesome. it. <laughs> no, but it's like
2: there's. If you scrutinize your drinking habits, you'll discover that you don't actually. Most people drink something very close. I don't drink beer, and I don't drink whiskey, and I don't drink kombucha. But with my five,
0: yeah,
2: yeah. I got an awful lot of the world.
0: Indeed. Malcolm Gladwell, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us today. Thank you for always being so generous with me. And thank you for joining us today on Design Matters. Thank you, Deb. You can find out almost everything Malcolm Gladwell has been up to on his website, gladwellbooks.com. This is the 15th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we could make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Mollman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
1: Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts, Masters in Branding program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland.